0: For another question, season three, episode two, we're going to talk about, oh, dice. One sec, let me check my table here. Hold on. Looks like we're going to get platonically solid and I'm going to have to rant about D20s. Hold on. Let me, let me work my way up to that.
1: Hello, folks, and welcome to another question. This time we're going to be talking about DICE, especially as they relate to uh, Dungeons & Dragons and everything that's descended from it. We are not going to be talking about one HP Game Jam games yet, uh, since we haven't had a time to read over them yet, as of this recording. Uh, But we will get there. We will talk about them in a future episode, whenever that happens. So today, uh, we're talking about DICE. You want to lead us off, Adam? Yeah,
0: sure. So uh, one of the really interesting things about dice in D&D is that they weren't always talked about as D6 and D12 and D20. The old school dice values were 2 to 16. Mm -hmm. And you had to figure out how to actually make that show up on your dice. Uh, Which is a really interesting way to think about probability, I guess, in games. Because you could make a 2D16 by rolling a D20 and then just re-rolling everything outside that range until you get it. Or you could make it by rolling 2D8 or you could make it by... There's, there's a ton of different ways that you could do a 2 to 16. And they're all going to feel really different. Mm-hmm. And the game designers were like, whatever. Or they had something in mind, but they just didn't know how to phrase it. Although in the original books, they said, here we could we could use this D6 style notation, but
1: then they never actually used it in the book. Yeah. They just mentioned it at the beginning, right? I, so I think that's really interesting because it points to... Dice are are one step removed from what they actually do in the game in some ways, but Mm -hmm. they're also very emblematic. Uh, You've got the most fundamental reason for having dice is so that the person writing the game can describe a probability range and give you a way to replicate that range. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, in very early DD, and there, there's actually, a, uh, like, exercise left to the reader there in getting all the way between those two things. But most fundamentally, it, it is still the, here, you need to generate a number in this range to it. Right. And, and the fact that we do that with dice, like, so much of what makes dice work versus every other way that that could happen comes down to stuff that game designers don't talk about a lot okay. around like the, the tactile and physical um, and visual aspects of dice.
0: Good. This is totally something that I wanted to talk. Oh, about me too. Today. Okay. Uh, good.
1: Yeah. Uh, so like, I think some of the obvious things about dice are, are dice is handing away responsibility. Mm-hmm. They're, they're a way for the, the GM in uh, Vincent's apocalypse world terms to declaim responsibility to say, uh, you know, I'm going to say that this might happen, but it's up to something outside of me to decide if it actually does. Mm. And that allows us all at the table to to do things that, if we did them directly, might seem more personal. You know, the your character might die here. We're going to roll the dice and find out. Right. Uh, helps it not be as direct as, well, you did that. You're going to die. Right. Um, it adds an element of the unknown, which is important. Uh, the interesting thing about both of those is that they're not, actually, they don't require a randomness element. Like, we can declaim responsibility by saying somebody else gets to uh, decide this. Mm -hmm. We can uh, add an element of the unknown through the same thing. We've got, like, these excellent randomness or perceived randomness engines in other people around the table, Mm -hmm. but still dice are so important, and I think a lot of that boils down to the actual artifacts, the, the dice themselves. Definitely. Like dice versus cards, right? Yeah. You can replace dice in most games
0: with cards... And the abstract nature of the game, the abstract nature of the probability doesn't change. Like, there's a a replacement for Catan Dice Mm -hmm. that is 36 cards, each doing 2d6, and to even out the probability. Yeah. And, I mean, aside from evening out the probability, you're probably not going to notice too much of a difference in rolls. But the difference in feel between flipping over a card... And rolling the dice and then waiting that extra second for it to come to a stop. Hearing the sound of the dice getting rolled, the flip of a card has it, there's less momentum there. There's less, I don't know, it feels like less of a reveal because mm-hmm. it's it's not like you I, I have a I have a version of of Epi's Swords Against Master that uses a tarot deck. And the only reason I feel like it can work with a tarot deck is because you can hide it and you can look at it. Mm. Or you can hide it and nobody can look at it so that you have those moments of tension. Sure. But otherwise, you, you normally just don't get that with a f- straight card flip. You need, you need a second or two of, of weight and, and the noise. Uh, and, I mean, you know, people have beautiful dice and stuff, too, and that's a huge piece of it.
1: I think that's, that's a piece that really stands out to me. So, like, imagining if early D&D had gone somewhere closer to what 4th edition almost did in some ways, where uh, instead of having lots of dice, you have cards that represent various powers and stuff, and you can get those and buy them, and it ends up looking a little bit more like magic in some ways. Um, I think that would be a very different game in how we perceive these objects um, because the the interaction of these objects is different. Like if, if you look at magic, a more successful game than D&D in a lot of ways. Um, The cards are still, like, these desirable objects that are important. They work well. They have great tactile feels of, Mm -hmm. like, if you look at even um, digital versions, they often still put in a card shuffling sound. And some Mm -hmm. of these, like, some of those elements are really important. And often most digital card games these days still go with a, um, like, drag-to-play idiom as opposed to like a click thing because part of what feels good about these things is that they're tactical, tactile things that you move around and do stuff with. Mm-hmm. There's lots of wonderful things about cards, but they don't translate as well to the game that D&D in particular became. And I think most role-playing games, like there are certainly card-driven role-playing games, but they the ones that I think are most successful are where the de- uh, decks of cards tend to be closest to replicating dice. Mm-hmm. Like, car, um, and I think part of that is the the dice themselves are both important and distinctive, but also completely interchangeable. You can sit down with anybody's dice. You can scrounge up your D6s from Monopoly or whatever. Or you can go to Gen Con and buy either the super fancy material dice or the like gamer dice that are finely crafted to be equal probabilities and everything. Like, There's so much that you can do to express yourself in these without... Um, while still having the same functional thing, mm-hmm. whereas magic, like people make altars of magic cards, but there you generally don't play with altars. It's mm-hmm. more of a like show off the the cool thing you did. Um, There's a ritual thing to dice that is separate separate from the ritual of cards
0: too, right? Mm-hmm. The ritual of dice is more of a you know we're asking the fates what's going to happen and we're we're gonna roll the bones to to look into the future or to. To give us details about the situation that we don't know, whereas a lot of the rituals around cards are are games in them in their own right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we're gonna play cards because we're going to strategize. We're gonna play cards because we're going to we're going to bluff. We're going to hold a position. We're going to have information that somebody else doesn't have. Uh, you know, this is an entire always true for everybody, but but a lot more. A lot more of the ritualistic stuff that's been, you know, really, really old tends to be closer to the dice model, the throw things on the floor and see what sticks, the, you know, what's left after I drink all of my tea type of stuff. Here's this, this randomness that's just visible to everybody and interpreting it is the real kind of question with with the
1: result. Which is really which, you, like with the, the exception of tarot, but yeah. it's still in some ways more about the interpretation in that case. Yeah. Like you you Yeah. I, I think that's really insightful. Um, I think yeah. that the the
0: hard part about the hard part about doing cards and not just having them be a random number is that when you're playing a role-playing game, any decision that you're making that is not a decision kind of sitting in a director chair or an actor or, you know, one of those stances that we were talking about tends to be a decision that takes you away from thinking about the story Mm -hmm. and kind of the narrative and your character's plans and your team's plans. And you're thinking about, well, how can I manipulate these, you know, artifacts of game and not artifacts of the narrative itself, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas the dice tend to be we're going to do our our general narrative, our story. We're working our way through. Our head is in that space. And then we don't know what's going to happen at this moment, so we're going to turn to this dice ritual and then interpret it. And you roll the dice almost in the same worlds as you've been thinking. Mm-hmm. And then the interpretation is almost entirely in that world already, right? Yeah. Because you're just sitting there trying to think about, well, what does this mean? when i'm when i'm trying to hit the orc and i roll my my d20 and i only get a 5 what does that actually mean in the space of the world so you're not
1: actually outside of it for very long which is really nice yeah and i think the when you mentioned cards before and some of the the things that come with cards in games a lot of those are things that Car that involve cards being a form of like state or memory uh in in D and most role-playing games the memory is in your your character sheet and those like artifacts of play and uh the the need for randomness is like an in the moment here and now like give me a random result thing we we in some ways aren't looking as much for the memory in the, the repeated random elements. We want those to be a way to fill in the gaps and we will provide the memory. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the the part of the great thing about cards is... Both the uh, like counting of cards, like the the you know that a card is in there somewhere, it hasn't come up yet, you can you can count on it, uh, or on the the hidden information, the hidden state, uh, which are things that dice don't typically do. You know, you can roll your dice behind a shield and then reveal them and all that stuff, but that is not an intrinsic property of the dice. Um, I think there's also something th- the the dice shapes, with the exception of the d10, are mm-hmm. so fundamental that I think. There's some degree of reaction to them that is very deep-seated. Like the, these are very simple shapes that we we can see in other places than on dice, especially like the D four, like that. That is a form of a pyramid, basically. Like that. Not that I think people are, like, reading deep Freudian meaning into that or anything, but they are just, uh, like, even just the stacking of dice is, is a pleasurable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like, my kids have foam dice that they love to chuck around and throw, and it, it's interesting to see how important those things are, um, and it's interesting to see how D&D leveraged those the, this dice available to it. Like, mm-hmm. the, the set of dice that we tend to think of as canonical right now, D4, D6, D8, D10, D20, D12. I always forget that one. d mm-hmm. um, the best eye. Depends. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: They're all these regular polyhedron, you know, beautiful, symmetric yeah, objects, right?
1: Well, that and their... Um, they've become so iconic, and the way that D&D leveraged them. Like, some of those are there because they are the shapes that you could get dice in. Mm -hmm. Um, But the game hasn't actually evolved much over time to take advantage of the fact that you can get lots of different shapes. Like a game like Dungeon Crawl Classics leverages all these different dice to get different... um, results out of like different ranges of probability different results different kind of swings to it uh games like um miseries and misfortunes takes basic D and then adds a uh like scaling to d6s where your skill can go beyond what a d6 represents and then you use bigger dice uh but still only fail on some of the numbers so you you keep on reducing your chance of failure and increasing the odds that you can you know beat somebody else beat a uh an obstacle whatever um the trade-offs there are interesting, and it's interesting that D d hasn't taken advantage of this. Sure. Uh I'm gonna say for the most part, to pad myself, but I can't think of DD ever going beyond the set of dice which has been basically typical from the beginning. Uh, I mean D one hundred also in there, but it's yeah. Do do we
0: do we need to have a D20 rant? Because I've got several d Oh D20 Sure, go for rants a D20 rant. I hate, I hate the D20. Really? Why? Well, because it's way too close. It rolls too far. Okay. Right, because it's way too close to a sphere. It's super far away from the D12 in terms okay. of probability, so that, that kind of scaling up just breaks. D20 plus modifier is the most boring probability piece as mm-hmm. you can possibly get. Is this kind of weird linear thing. I like advantage, because advantage is a little harder to calculate on the fly. Sure. I know it's basically a plus two or a plus three or something. Uh, I know somebody calculated that out. But you know, talking about oh yeah, I leveled up, and so now all of my numbers go up by one. I know that that means a five percent chance, unless I'm way off the edge of the probability range, and then it means a, a nothing. Yeah. You know, or or it means a five percent chance, which is to to a person you you can't even tell a 5% chance. Like, that's not as visceral as, oh, you know, my stat went up by one in some Apocalypse World game, and that means something like a 16% chance at, mm-hmm. at various places on the curve, right?
1: Yeah, uh, John Harper has a rant about, uh, like, D&D-based games that reflect uh, various fantasy creatures with, like, a uh plus 2 to the stat which works out to a plus 1 to the modifier mm-hmm. which means that you know the legendary constitution of the dwarves is a 5% swing Yeah. which like okay if we're if we're talking statistical population models sure that that like <laughs> matters but in the like the the uh lord of the rings sense where right. like you meet dwarves and you're just astounded by how like hardy they are that means nothing no. uh no. and and so the yeah, I, I can get your point there on the the usage of that die and the, the modifiers on it are the most boring thing. The plus one modifier on on a d20 is just so useful. It's also just this fight in the same kind of way as,
0: as this overlapping populations, right? But on the same space, you have, especially the way that people play it normally, which is, oh, you rolled a crit. Well, cool. Uh, even though they're a demigod, Or you rolled a crit on this listening check that I probably shouldn't have let you roll in the first place because it's like shooting the moon. But I let you and now you rolled that d20 and got a 20. Or you you rolled that one and so I feel like I need to do some kind of critical fail and there's no, you know, that 5% chance doesn't mean the same thing to an expert as it does to a beginner. Mm -hmm. It's it's like in Burning Wheel they say, you know, part of the system is the idea that you cannot possibly roll a seven seven successes on six dice. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes things are just going to be impossible for you. Yep. And that is that is the system's assumption. But in 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 D&D you can often get, you know, your d20 almost always far outweighs
1: your modifiers. And then when when it doesn't, mm-hmm. the d20 stops being interesting mm-hmm. because your modifier dominates the result. There's the uh the third edition Deities and Demigods, which the at the time I, I kind of liked it just for the like absurd scaling of it. And mm-hmm. like the the pantheons of D&D are always something <laughs> that like has driven a lot of my games and find it really interesting. Uh so like that's great, but all it did was like scale those numbers up to the point where, you know, you've got your plus twenty on a save. And mm-hmm. so now you're yeah, it's it's plus or minus fifty percent. Like basically from from the midpoint there Mm -hmm. which is now not nearly as the the dice aren't playing as important a role and at the time this all seemed like oh fine and and cool in the mathematical sense that like they, they made this system that is in some ways kind of this like it feels like a pure mathematical model and you just keep on getting larger numbers like you it's not that anything changes you just keep on adding larger numbers and that's fine whereas now if you look at something um Blades in the Dark, Mouse Guard, uh, Torchbearer, like, those have systems that help you have a discussion about things that are just beyond you. Mm -hmm. Um, And and maybe you can still succeed at, but, like, uh, in Blades in the Dark, it's, you know, being in a desperate situation versus being in a controlled situation. Um, In Mouse Guard or Torchbearer, it's kind of the order of might. Like, some things are just beyond you, and so you're rolling out a penalty against them, and at some point, that penalty predominates over everything else. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter if you're rolling against... A, if you're a first-level Torchbearer character, rolling against a dragon just isn't going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, in most things, which uh, that game also has <laughs> a lot of Tolkien <laughs> influence, and so, of course, like, maybe you can get into a riddle battle with a dragon, and then it actually doesn't matter, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's such a solvable problem, and it, it kind of comes from the dice. Like, I think that there's, there's this issue with dice, that if you take them too mathematically, they can get very dry and very boring, and, like, it, but it also can feel very nice and orderly and consistent. Like, uh, you and I are both engineers by profession, and, like, there's something that just feels nice about, like, there's not a weird break here. It's not a different thing. We just keep on adding numbers, and it keeps on working. Mm-hmm. W- working in quotation marks. Um, yeah, there's, there's
0: a really interesting thing about probability in human brains that we just don't understand probability very well Mm -hmm. intuitively, right? We can do the math and understand that I have a 65% chance of success here, but then in my head, I can't help but think somewhere, well, that means I should succeed. Mm -hmm. And no, that's not not exactly how probability works. It means maybe, you know, sometimes I'll succeed and sometimes I'm not going to succeed. And the whole gist of this, Kind of, I get my five percent extra. Well, the time between we started play and now, I feel like I will never fail on my on my stealth check. You never really get there. Like, maybe you'll get to seventy five percent chance that you'll succeed on your stealth check, especially when the DM is making up their own uh, their own thresholds Mm -hmm. for how the how the dice is going to flip one way or another. I think there's
1: also an issue around the like the way that we um, come up with those thresholds and the way that we we set numbers, like we, unless you are going very much by the book, which sometimes is difficult to do, Mm -hmm. these things can often seem unreasonable. Like if uh, the probabilities given in a, you know, uh, D&D Dungeons Master's Guide for, you know, this is a tough thing for characters of this level can seem wildly out of proportion depending on how the players roll because realistically, like, most RPGs outside of maybe combat-heavy D&D, you're not making enough rolls to do for for these things to really play out probabilistically in some ways. Like, you're going to see... You're not getting a large enough sample size for the the modifiers to make as big an effect in some ways as the dice like we're we're looking at it another way we're we're talking about football not baseball like mm-hmm. the yeah. sample size is so small that somebody just rolling really well can mean winning a fight because you you only have so many of those fights like even mm-hmm. realistically i think most i would estimate most d and d sessions at two to three combats a night, played, let's say, once a week. Uh, You know, in a month of that, you're getting maybe 12 combats, which is, like, still easily within the realm of just the... distribution of probability there, depending on how long those fights go, because hopefully those fights aren't going so long. Yeah, like, if you're
0: playing DD to the
1: point where you're getting baseball like stats, you're probably probably not having a great time. Probably not. Like, uh, yeah. And I think that's the interesting thing. Like we we want this randomness and we need it. And but we're rarely at a given table, really hitting like statistical significance in our results. Some of this um, is
0: the granularity too, right?
1: Yes. Uh, Mark Rosewater
0: talks about granularity and magic, and how he he's a little sad that the way that the math flew out in the '90s was okay. We're gonna have twenty life mm-hmm. because when you have twenty life, it sets a whole bunch of other you know things. A bear is two damage. A bear is a two two in magic. Well. If a bear is a 2-2 and you want to make a squirrel, there's nowhere else you can go but a 1-1. Yep. Yeah. And that means two squir- squirrels can take out a bear, which doesn't feel right, Yeah. you know? And there's a lot of granularity around, you know, what should a fireball... How much fi- damage should a fireball do? How much damage should, should uh, Emrakul, the Cthulhu-esque monster in Magic the Gathering, do? How many
1: squirrels does it take to take down Emrakul, right? Well, and the fact that, like, the... When you attack a, a character or uh, if you multi-block something, mm-hmm. damage is additive. Mm-hmm. But the the um, story definition of what power means is a logarithmic scale. Mm-hmm. So, like, yes, uh, a bear is a 2-2, a scroll is a 1-1. But that's supposed to mean that it's, like, an order of magnitude more powerful. Mm-hmm. But then you add things. Like, it, it, it they have this whole story justification for how they try to come up with these, you know, what can be a various power and it really doesn't make any sense the first time somebody told me that like there's you know there's logic behind what's supposed to be what power i was like no there isn't no, no. and so and and so you know coming right back to d and d
0: d and d's d20 means that when you're a dm trying to come up with what is the what's the value that i'm that i'm gonna assign to this if you don't have it like an ac that's setting a value you are recommended to take 5 10 15 20 20 like you've You've got the fives that you're working with effectively because the granularity of the D20 and the granularity of, you know, how much work should you be doing to actually set up your difficulty, I I was really worried going into Burning Wheel about actually having to set difficulty levels again after a long time of, you know, Blades and, and Apocalypse World and Dungeon World where I don't even have to think about it. And then in Burning Wheel, even just one modifier... Is a oh, yeah. huge deal oh, in Burning yeah. Wheel. Where if I tell you, oh, that's a 15 difficulty, wait, it's a 16 in D&D. You're going to be like, I don't even, I hardly even care.
1: Yeah. You know? It's, Whereas in in Burning Wheel, going from like three to four is a massive. It's like, thing. oh, I can't even do it now. Yeah. Like, you know, before I had like a, a you know, I've got my two dice and I have the, the Artha to explode that. So like maybe I can get there. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, now I... I the probability just went to, like now. I need another six there to yeah. even have the possibility. Like I think it's yeah. The the probabilities behind these games are so interesting because there's so much more about how they feel than the actual mathematical results. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every time I see somebody and I've I've done this as well, working out the actual probability curves of various mechanics, they they're important to look at especially from the design side of things because if you look at everybody who ever plays your game you're getting statistical significance Mm -hmm. but if you look at at a table Mm -hmm. that granularity doesn't really help you much Uh, and it's a lot more about you know how you handle these different states I think that's something that Apocalypse World really pointed out to me I think a lot of people is that um, it it matters a lot less exactly how you set the difficulty than how you handle the outcomes of that difficulty yeah, like the totally. outcomes of the role um and and that is it is super useful like now when i go back and play dnd and I have to come up with a, an obstacle for some or you know a target number a dc for something it's It just feels so fiddly. Like, it's all this little extra work. And there's diminishing returns on the DM side as well, where, like, you can choose your 5, 10, 15, 20, and then maybe attack on a plus or minus 2 for, like, some kind of, you know, advantage, disadvantage. Well, I mean, if you don't have advantage, disadvantage. You either attack on advantage, disadvantage, or you attack on a plus or minus 2. And then anything past that, you're either getting so close to entirely changing to your next 5, or it's only a plus or minus 1 and it doesn't really matter mm. though like there there really aren't that many difficulties in in D&D that matter and then with your your d20 dice you need a modifier that's big enough on that that it matters but that means that you pretty quickly diverge between people who are skilled and not which means that it doesn't take long before to have something that's challenging for a person that's good at it everybody else is completely out of it right you you don't have the the kind of thing where you know everybody tries to sneak by the the demon guard or whatever it's not a normal guard now it's more difficult finding a probability of that that allows everybody to have a shot at it Mm -hmm. without making it automatic in some direction for somebody is really tough Um, and that's assuming that you want to represent a world where like these things are possible I mean I guess part of the thing that falls out of it is that in D&D you start out with everybody kind of being able to do everything and then you pretty quickly diverge to the point where it's like well only the thief can do this or only the wizard can Tell us that. Because that's the granularity of the system. That's the granularity of the system. I think a lot of it falls out of the dice. I, I think mm-hmm. looking at early d and I don't know that it was quite that intentional to diverge quite that strongly. Right. Um, and I, I personally find it more fun when we don't diverge quite that strongly. I like characters who are bad enough at something to be worth trying it. Um, because if, if they're bad enough that everybody looks at the table and are like, why are you even trying to do that? You're obviously going to fail. That's no fun. But right. if everybody looks at you and are like, you're taking a big risk here, like that's the moment that I love. Yeah. I I, I want to play the knight who's going to try to sneak past the demon in full plate and have just enough chance of it for it to be interesting. Well, it's like a lot of... So when I played basic, uh, I remember a lot of the, the
0: recommendations being, you know, if you're not sure about something, pick one to six yeah. and roll a d6. And a d6 is a small enough granularity that even just one out of six is is doable. Yeah. It's not It's not likely, but it's doable. Um, and the probability is not going to fall. Like, it feels worse for some reason when you're uh, rolling your d20 to try and beat the threshold, and you roll, like, a two. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, you know, even nobody here would have beaten the threshold on a two. So who bat- who cares if I did it, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas in, in the... In the D6 realm, you're, you're never that far away from, yep. oh, I could have almost made it or whatever. Yeah. Uh, which is a great time. The other thing that I think you get with d and switching gears a little bit here, is there's so many roles in modern D&D, at least, to get something interesting done. Mm-hmm. Um, combat requires multiple roles for a single attack, yeah. which feels a little weird. Like, it's not full GURPS where you need, like, four roles to actually get an attack done because you need to make an attack and then they need to make a block and then you need to make a you know counter something and then there's a damage something and yeah but uh, it feels it feels weird that a game like this has DM advice that said you should really just roll your attack and damage simultaneously and then you know maybe your damage isn't necessary that's like well why is your damage ever necessary you already have this huge granular d20 that can tell you how well you hit the thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Why can't that just tell you the damage? I, I honestly think that part of it, because like I'm, I'm sure that somebody along the line designing D and D has thought this, mm-hmm. and I think part of the reason they haven't done it is because mm-hmm. the funky dice and getting to point to you know, oh, I'm the fighter, so I've got a big D10 weapon is a lot of fun, and it feels really good. And this brings... The, the thing that I've been dying to talk about this entire time nice. uh, is... Oh, I didn't even realize what I was doing there. Is uh, <laughs> Die, which is a comic book and role-playing game um, from Kieran Gillian and... Uh, I forget the artist's name. Um, I'm going to feel bad about that because I think it really is a collaboration. Uh, but... It's, uh, the, the comic book is about uh, a bunch of kids who on somebody's birthday show up at a friend's house and that friend has made a custom role-playing game just for them. And uh, each person is handed uh, a singular die representing their uh character class they, they all describe a concept and then because this is a comic book so we can imagine somebody can do this he designs a class to match that on the fly and hands them each a specific die um except one person gets a d6 which d6s are the standard dice in the game so everybody gets a special die representing who they are except for the person who gets the d6 but their d6 is still special because they get to put whatever numbers they want on the sides um Stephanie Hans is the artist. There we go. Thank you. Uh, because uh, I've also been reading Karen Gillian and um, Jamie McKelvey's uh, Wicked and the Divine, which I know is so much a collaboration that I feel like it's important to give credit to both here. For sure. Um, so the, the wonderful thing there is how, uh, like, kind of totemic the, the the dice become. There There is this... Uh, there's an essay in the back of, I think it's the third issue or so, maybe it's the second, about designing these classes and how um, each, like, the dice, their size and relation to each other and their shapes all influenced how these get assigned to different classes and how the different classes kind of, like, fall out differently from this. And um, it's it's also this super powerful kind of ritual phrase. Like we've talked a lot about Dice's ritual mm-hmm. and handing each person their die that represents them is like a really interesting thing. It, it's in some ways the, um, it brings more of the legacy gameplay, I feel, that this like um, permanent modification in a way that like all RPGs have permanent modification. It's kind of the, the fundamental thing is you're writing stuff on your sheet and it's going to change over time. Mm-hmm. But something about handing dice out in that way really taps into this feeling of, you know, this is mine. This is important. And it doesn't in in a way that also leverages everybody there. Like, if we're going to sit down and play, the the game that basically... comes with this is is also called Die and you play both the people at the table and their characters so it's like a two level role playing thing it's really interesting it's it's cool it's freely available right now hopefully it will become an actual published game I, I highly recommend at least reading it because it's really interesting um, but the to see this in play people bringing the dice like you could reasonably show up with your own dice mm-hmm. which I think is an interesting buy in uh, you, you and I were talking about um legacy games and buy in there Mm -hmm. how with a lot of legacy games you start out with everybody making some kind of symbolic permanent modification like signing the rule back of the board or the rule book or writing their name on something just to show that you're bought in stakes Um, stakes Mm -hmm. Uh, and we this actually came up because of fantasy football like I'm I'm playing fantasy football with money on the line for the first time and all of a sudden it's this vibrant dynamic like everybody's actually making trades and stuff whereas I've done it before where it was just for bragging rights and it's really easy to just decide like I don't care about that um, and the amount of money on the line here is is pretty trivial, but it it's that buy-in. It's the same way that I think if if playing die, especially if the dice you bring are yours, if mm-hmm. if it is a very personal thing, I, I think that matters a lot. And I think part of it ties back to how totemic the dice are in all role-playing games. You look at them and you know there's something that we did some of with with Dungeon World where your damage isn't based on your weapon, it's based on your class. Mm-hmm. So that you and ideally, uh, we we did this in Inglorious, and I think if we ever did a Dungeon World 2nd Edition, I'd do it for just in the base game. Like, monsters should also fall in the same category. Like, mm-hmm. this is a D4 monster. Like, we kind of already have that in Monster Generation in Dungeon World, but we don't leverage it as hard as I want. Like, I would say the primary thing that you decide first is dice size, which is kind of like Shade in Burning Wheel mm-hmm. or, or Order of Might in Torchbearer. Um, And then you layer on a few modifications for things Uh, like those kinds of iconic things are really easy for people to leverage and and build concepts around and to add these kind of important rituals and phrases around. Yeah, Um, yeah, absolutely. I was tempted to to come up with another game jam out of this, but considering I didn't finish my game for the first game jam, I, I'm not going to start throwing out a game jam for every episode. I didn't. Like, I, I was
0: trying very hard to not write like 50 games for our own game jam because I wanted to spend a bit more time reading for it.
1: Yeah, the the timing of the game jam uh, felt poorly for me with work stuff, so I I fell way behind on what I wanted to make for it. Um, I'm really excited about a lot of them. Like talking
0: about you know when I talk about Damage Dice, a lot of it's because of my uh, deep-seated hatred for damage for bullet sponge enemies. Yeah. Like, it is not interesting for combat for me to sit there and we're gonna go back and forth and you're gonna tell me numbers and I'm gonna add them up. Yeah. And that's, it's just, it's just not very fun. Mm -hmm. And so all of these games that I'm seeing come into the jam that are, oh yeah, this has a drastic influence on how you will play, how you will choose to play, how you are going to choose to take the next action, how you're going to, you know... You're you're not just going to sit there whacking somebody with a sword because you cannot do that in any of those games. And I love that about this kind of system, even though it's pulling one more thing away from what are the dice going to do, right? I really like... Kind of where the at least where the games that I've been playing recently have gone, where a die roll is a big deal, yep, and you don't
1: do it very often, yep, right. So that's that's an important thing about dice in in D anD. d In kind of my ideal D anD. lot of things sit at d six hit points and d six damage. Those are like your go to values, and so being like a d four hit point wizard is a big deal. Being a d eight uh, hit point fighter or, or cleric, maybe fighter goes all the way up to D10, whatever. Like, each of those steps seems like a big deal. And most things are dangerous. Um, and it means that even those little plus ones are are now a much bigger deal. Like, mm-hmm. if you are... if. Most classes are D6 HP, and you have plus one HP from your constitution. You can now take yourself out of one hittable range, uh, depending on your role there. Um, and then you have to wor- worry about scaling, because you don't really want everybody to deal one more dice and gain one more dice of HP as they go up. But whatever. Like, those are things that we'll talk about when we talk about advancement in D&D. Um, <laughs> but, like, I, there's... there's the smaller dice, I don't think, get enough credit, um, especially uh, starting with 3rd Edition, you know, yeah. D20 system. There, There is a big emphasis on the D20 being the driving factor and then everything else being kind of these, like, almost legacy dice in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's missing a lot of uh, possibility. Like, now that you've ranted about the D20, I find myself actually agreeing. I was ready to be skeptical because I kind of tend to like the D20. Uh, mm-hmm. But I totally agree that it is... It's too wide a range to do a lot of things that you want to do in role playing games. It's a chaos die, yeah, right. That's that's the big
0: thing about it to me is, even up to the twelve, a twelve is a pretty it is a good range, but it's not chaos most of the time. A twenty is huge when dealing with the numbers that you're usually talking about in D anD. d And a lot of the stuff that we're doing in D anD. for those for that for the d twenty is this threshold check. Mm-hmm. And when you have just a threshold check, it feels really weird to be rolling dice that big. Um, there was a, what is it, Legend of Five Rings, the old one, had d10, uh, roll a bunch and then keep some, mm-hmm. and then you got to add, which meant you're dealing with a smaller die so you know more about where your is going to actually end up, but you're adding several of them together, potentially potentially really high-value ones, and so you can still get, you know, 30s and 40s. Uh, if you're amazing at stuff. Mm-hmm. But you're rolling a die that gives you more of a chance to understand, oh, I'm rolling 3-keeping 2, you're rolling 2-keeping 1, I'm definitely beating you unless something really weird happens. Yeah, And that feel and, and not being able to calculate the exact probability of it, right? Whereas the d20, I'm rolling d20 plus 7 and you're rolling d20 plus 10. Well, I can tell you almost exactly, you know, I I can tell you how it's going to feel if I beat you, Yeah. right? Uh, It's going to feel weird, but it's probably going to happen way more often than the three-keep-two versus two-keep-one, right? Yeah, and
1: I think you're right. Like, the... um, Because you you were talking about, like, the three-keep-two, two-keep-one. Like, it's really clear who has the advantage there, Mm -hmm. but it's also a lot more obscure exactly what our expected range of our results are, Mm -hmm. which I think is really important. Like, uh, I think part of the... What I, in my burgeoning dislike of D20s, don't <laughs> like about them is how transparent they are. Right. Like It is super easy if you just know that every plus one or minus one is 5% to like get a ballpark estimate of every probability that you're going to hit. And because our understanding of probabilities is so poor
0: internally, you'll say, I know what that number is, and so I have an expectation that expectation is actually pretty wrong. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you're playing, even with even with a 2d6 threshold, mm-hmm. that's enough of a curve that, you know, I, I guess that's partially how I play games, though, too. Right? Uh, and I, I, I've got friends that don't do this, so so we'll talk about it for a second. The idea of looking ahead in a game and trying to understand, if I make this move and you make this move, where are we gonna be? and trying to explore that game state. As you throw randomness and hidden information and probability into there, I very quickly do an intuitive leap and say, well, this is probably where we're going to go. I'll deal with this contingency plan, and I can cut off a lot of my trees. I do know people who will dig down those trees a lot longer, Mm -hmm. especially if the probability is so easy to calculate. Yeah. Right? Whereas if you've got... I'm going to roll 10d6 and 4s and higher. Well, I can make an estimate, but I I really don't understand as well the range that it could possibly get to, or at least I know that I don't understand, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's much easier to be like, well, you know, I should be around here and I'll be I'll feel really good if I get a little bit higher, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the the understanding of probability and the feeling of probability is a big portion of why dice matter and, and why, like, they, they are so clearly instruments of randomization. Um, I, I was thinking back last weekend I got to play uh, Dune, the the board game, and it's a game that I always think of as having no randomness, but that's that's not true. There are right. random elements, but there are, there are these card decks and they it still feels like a game that is not very random. It just has lots of hidden information. Mm -hmm. And some of that information, like, some of it is random so you can guess at how likely certain things are. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, it's more a game of hidden information than it is of random information. And it feels very, it still feels very unpredictable in a way that um, I think a lot of RPGs without... Hidden information sometimes fall down on, or sorry, without um, random uh, randomization. So, Mm -hmm. like, if you look at something like uh, Fiasco, Fiasco first edition, I haven't played second yet. Um, It's very similar. It it is very similar. I just didn't want to speak ahead in case I missed something. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, like the 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 way that that game works, there's randomization in the setup. And then your unpredictability is mostly coming from other people at the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it still works. Like I think that's something that people really underestimate a lot in role-playing games in general is how much unpredictability you can get from the other people at the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think part of the reason that we overlook that is just because dice are so great at that. Mm-hmm. And also because dice are something that you can more easily carry forward from the designer. Uh, So like if a designer wants to say something about the world in a game that is using a lot of dice for randomization, there's random tables, and you can actually pack a lot of information into that Mm -hmm. while still having surprise and all that stuff. If you are relying on people at the table to be surprising, especially if you still have a split in who gets to say what about what, it it gets really complicated. Part of the reason that Fiasco can be so surprising is because it sets very clear expectations for uh, what the genre is but then nobody has more say than anybody else. Whereas if you have one person who is responsible for, like, what the world really is, you, you can't rely on everybody else for your randomization because that's going to break who can say what about what. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of gm list di- games, at least a lot of the ones that I know about, don't use dice.
0: Right? Fiasco, Microscope. Even ones that rotate GMs rely on the dice a little less heavily, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of that is that a GM's game is is a big trust exercise, anyways. And so the dice are are there in a GM'd game to say, you know, look, it's not my fault. Here's what happens. Yep. Or or to give you a little bit of a creative nudge, right? Like, if I'm saying everything, then all of my assumptions about the world are just going to keep going. Whereas if I get to roll and be like, oh, actually, uh, you did kill the dragon right now, then that can throw a whole bunch of my assumptions away if I can be a good GM, right? Mm-hmm. But if we're playing a five-player game of, of Fiasco, where does... You already have five people weaving their chaos into that game. You don't. There's not much of a space for, for other dice rolls. And I mean, Fiasco does kind of that, let's disclaim responsibility for what happens to our characters afterwards yeah. with that roll, right? but in the middle of the game because you don't you know you're just kind of walking through this world blind a little bit anyways like you can't make you can make some plans yeah. in fiasco right and then you can try and make them turn out and the other people at the table can try and help you make them turn out which works really well <laughs> um, it, i mean it's oh, it's a great game yeah it's really it's a really interesting place to say where are dice necessary and where are dice helpful and what do dice do in those, in those situations? Right. Yeah.
1: So I think we've covered it pretty well. I think that we, we've, uh, done a pretty deep dive into the nature of dice and D and D, why, why they work and what other games have taken from them. So, uh, Next time, we'll be back. We'll talk some about the 1HP Game Jam games, and uh, we may talk about another core concept of D&D some as well. Hopefully. Hopefully. So, uh, until next time, I'm Sage LaTora. I'm here with Adam Blinkensop, mm-hmm. and uh, this has been Another Question.